0: Are you a farmer or dairy business of the future? Then we encourage you to attend our annual Dairy Strong Conference on January 19th through the 20th in Madison, Wisconsin, or participate virtually. Dairy Strong brings together a wide variety of management philosophies and shares innovative ideas with forward-thinking farmers and dairy businesses to explore. Registration and sponsorship opportunities are available at dairyforward.com. Welcome to Dairy Stream, brought to you by the Dairy Business Association and Edge Dairy Farmer Cooperative, sister organizations that fight for sensible dairy policy in Wisconsin and Washington, D.C. Dairy Stream focuses on issues affecting the dairy community and our customers. Hi, I'm your host, Mike Austin. Well, many times the topics we discuss here on Dairy Stream are the results of really requests by you, the listener. And today is another example of that as we Focus on milk classes and components and how they really impact milk prices, and in particular, your own milk check. Now, on the surface, this may seem a rather simplistic topic at times. However, as we get into some of the specifics, you're going to learn it's got a lot more complex and not even bring up some own questions in your own mind. And that's why we're calling on the expertise of Dr. Chris Wolf. He's professor of applied economics and management at Cornell University. And Professor Wolf, thank you again for giving us your time and your expertise on this topic. Uh, We certainly appreciate it. And let's start out the podcast by looking at how milk classes and components have really evolved over time.
1: All right. Well, thanks, Mike. I'm glad to be here talking to you. Yeah. you know, anytime we start talking about uh, dairy markets and policy, it seems like we always have to have a history lesson. Um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, it's no different here. So classified pricing and pooling, Uh, were introduced by cooperatives in the late 1800s and early 1900s, kind of various parts of the country, as a way to increase revenue to producers by taking advantage of the fact that fluid milk product customers were willing to pay a higher price without damaging the quantity sold, essentially, and also to more equitably share revenue among producers. So the first market that used classified pricing and pooling was Boston in 1896. And then classification essentially just is assigning milk to a category based on how it ends up being used, which product it's it, it used as, because of course we don't consume milk in the way that it leaves the farm. Even whole milk is not whole milk except accidentally in the way that it leaves the farm. So beverage milk beverage products have always been class one and manufactured products have kind of varied the number of products over the years depending on what period we're talking about and where and there's been as few as one manufactured product category and as many as eight different classes and the rationale here again is is really an economic rationale it's based on the price elasticity of demand which is you know derived from the consumer demand for these products
0: well, when we talked then about the, the classes, currently, you know, we have the four classes. I'm hoping most dairy producers uh, would know what those are, but there's people outside the industry that are listening to this podcast as well. So could you kind of quickly give us a little foundation of what the current four classes are?
1: So right now, as you said, in the federal milk marketing orders, of which there are 11 orders, we have uh, four classes that are the same, defined the same across the different orders. Uh, the class one products are those that you drink. So beverages, but also in this case, It includes uh, eggnog and UHT milk. Class two products are are those that you eat with a spoon. So um, yogurt, ice cream, cottage cheese, and and others of of that nature. And class three is uh, all different kinds of cheese and cream cheese and whey products of all types. So the the co-products there of cheese and whey. And then class four is the butter and its joint products, either skim milk powder, nonfat dry milk, as well as any milk in dry form would be class four.
0: Now, I know a lot of producers that are listening to this, uh, they get paid by their components, but some of them might even not understand uh, what are all the milk components. Could you give us a quick rundown on that?
1: Sure. So the way we've done it since federal Order milk marketing order reform uh, back in two, that went into effect in 2000, it started under the 96 Farm Bill, so it took us kind of four years to get it in place, is we've observed wholesale products. So in this case, the U.S. Department of Agriculture surveys each week uh, cheese butter non-fat dry milk and dry whey and then using yield factors and what are called make allowances which is an amount that's allowed for the manufacturing cost of those products we backward engineer uh, farm components which is what as you said farmers get paid on and the components that farmers get paid on include butter fat and for all classes and then kind of depending on the class it's, it's either protein solids not fat or other solids kind of And so it varies a little bit depending on whether we're talking about class one, two, three, or four.
0: We are spending time with Dr. Chris Wolf, Professor of Applied Economics and Management at Cornell, and we're talking about uh, what are milk classes and components after the break. We're getting into kind of the nitty gritty of how does milk classes and components really impact milk price. But before we get to that part of our conversation, I want to just uh, stress the fact that, you know, milk doesn't always evenly flow in all four classes and that's brought up an opportunity for pooling and depooling. And certainly, uh, Chris, that's become a hot topic over the last couple of years. Can you kind of go into those subjects and give us a a brief explanation of the terms and give us some examples?
1: Absolutely. So as you said, milk doesn't flow evenly into all four classes, especially across different orders in the country. So, you know, in the upper Midwest there where you guys are in Wisconsin, you know, it's really driven by class three, um, mm-hmm. which is the majority of the, of the use there. And where I'm sitting in the Northeast, there's a lot more of the other classes. In particular, class one is we kind of sit closer to the uh, population centers in the, in the eastern part of the country. But anyway, class one processors are required to pool. Which is to say that their milk, unless they're very small, there's some exceptions, but virtually all class one processors are required to pool, which means that they must participate. In the federal milk marketing order they so they have to pay into the pool which then gets averaged across the four different classes when a, a uniform price gets or blend price gets calculated that pays the farmers but other classes of milk so two three and four actually can choose to meet the qualifying standards and pool in which case they might receive a draw from the pool with which to pay their farmers so that's a good thing for them and what this in effect does is the combination of classified pricing and pooling establishes a kind of an average price. Across the different uses for farmers, kind of an average base price to pay the farmers and compensates for balancing to some extent, which is a you know the the egg, the milk in, that's used for two, three or four could be pulled into class one if it's needed and. Uh, So we're kind of balancing depooling occurs when milk from the farm that was previously pooled is withdrawn from the pool, which is to say this month that that milk is not going into the pool. So it's not going to pay into the pool or take a draw from the pool. And this usually is class three milk, although it could be class two or four. And milk is going to be depooled in particular by class three, so cheese processors, in the case when class three is the highest price so that they would be actually, in that month, paying into the pool as opposed to taking a draw from the pool. So there's an opportunity with depooling for the cheese processors to be able to pay the farmers the same amount that they would have received had they participated in the pool or maybe even a bit more and still end up ahead of where they would have been because class three is the highest price. And that happened a lot of time in 2020, right, which is kind of why it is an important topic here today.
0: Yeah, it certainly so, was a big issue in 2020. Uh, when we talk about depooling, I mean, are there some limits to you know how often you can depool?
1: That's a really good question. There are. There are some potentially longer-term implications in the sense that depending on which federal milk marketing order you're participating in, there are rules about repooling. So, And those tend to vary a lot. So the the Northeast uh, federal milk marketing order here um, has some fairly strict repooling limits. And so if if you depool milk here, it's going to take you six months or more to get that that milk repooled. Some of the other orders, particularly out west, are are more lax as far as those repooling standards so that you could, in that case, maybe jump in and out of it. And the thing to remember about depooling is that if you're depooling, that almost certainly means that for example class three is the highest price which means there's less money in the pool to pay everybody else Hmm. so if you depool if it's your organization that's depooling you might end up ahead and so maybe you're not unhappy about that but if it's not your organization um you're probably unhappy about that because that means it's less total money to go around and you know some of the issues that we've kind of gotten a lot of farmer attention in the last year or so kind of all go back to kind of not enough total money in the pool
0: Right. So as a dairy producer, should I be supportive of this process or are there some questions <laughs> or some fine tuning that really could make this more consistent?
1: That's a really good question also. And, you know, there are some kind of underlying things that are the same across the orders. In the country, as far as definitions of handlers and producers and things of that nature, and the fact that we define the classes the same way, and and although to be fair, you know, even there we've got seven orders that produce that price using multiple component pricing, right? And those are most of the milk, and then we've got the other four that kind of still use the butterfat skim pricing. But there's also, I think, a need to have some level of flexibility to reflect the kind of realities of the region that you're in, right? So here in the Northeast, where there's more Class One and and in class two, there's a little bit different standards than there is, like, say, in California or or Wisconsin, maybe, where we've got more. So I think that's kind of part of the policy discussion that we're kind of starting to have here and going to need to have is what are the kind of non-negotiable principles that need to be the same across the different orders? And what are the ones that we need to allow some flexibility to reflect kind of the regional uh, realities?
0: We are sharing the expertise and insights of Dr. Chris Wolf, professor of applied economics and management at Cornell. We're talking about uh, what are milk classes and components, and also going to talk about how they really impact your milk prices here on our podcast on dairy stream. And you did mention Pooling and de pooling in 2020 is a big year. Well, 2020, obviously, the year of COVID 19, which has had an impact on the dairy industry as well. And really, it's had an impact on the consumer, uh, you know, because of. COVID, we didn't have a lot of people going to restaurants, so that impacted fluid milk sales, but then suddenly it helped increase the retail milk sales. Uh, Cheese sales uh, were impacted as well. We are seeing people eating more yogurt, eating more cheese as they're moving more toward fats. Really, how are those trends in the consumer market impacting the dairy industry?
1: Yeah, so as you said, COVID 19, the kind of the big fundamental change, especially in March and April, uh, and for a period there before we kind of. Uh started to figure some things out relative to how we might reopen some things. The big impact was by limiting or eliminating food away from home, right? right. And, and Americans in particular tend to eat differently when they eat at home as compared to out. And that has important implications for dairy consumption. So people don't tend to drink fluid milk or beverage milk as often when they eat out, they're more likely to drink it if they're at home. And so staying at home, one of the things that was kind of really stood out and consumption trends was that the kind of long term, the decline in per capita consumption of beverage milk halted. It flattened out there in 2020. And we essentially had consumption unchanged from 2019, as opposed to kind of the longer term declining at two or two and a half percent a year that we had been doing for the last 10 years. Sadly, though, as things have opened back up in 2021, we appear for consumption-wise for fluid milk to have gone back onto that kind of long downward trend. But that's an important Issue for dairy farmers because the beverage milk demand is kind of underlying this federal milk marketing order system that we're talking about because that's the primary you know issue that federal milk marketing orders are concerned with, which is right. making certain there's enough beverage milk for everybody. And and it, it gets a lot of headlines, right? So you've mm-hmm. probably seen the headlines that said you know, dairy is dying and all these things. And it misses, I think, an important bigger picture, which is that dairy consumption taken as a whole across products is not declining at all. In fact, it's going up every year. So while beverage milk consumption has been declining, cheese consumption has been increasing, butter consumption is up 20% in the last five years. Whole milk, uh, you know, so beverage milk as a whole, Group is declining, but whole milk consumption has been going up because as we've been doing kind of more research and more research comes out about consumption of uh, animal based on uh, fats and stuff, it turns out that the kind of story that, that they were unhealthy is kind of not really holding together, and so there's lots of positive news there. And as you said, the yogurt uh, consumption, if you just look at where we were 15 years ago compared to where we are to now, it's a phenomenal increase.
0: It really is, and, and as you said, uh, you know, you've given kind of explanation of how COVID-19 and post-COVID, although we're still in it, but at least 2021 compared to 2020, have shown some impacts on those classes. What about components, though? In particular, have they been impacted as well?
1: Yeah. So farmers, right, of course, get paid on components. Yep. So there's an incentive for them to increase components, both fat and protein, through genetics and nutrition, other management practices. And also if you think about it, right, a lot of expenses that farmers pay are not based on component level, they're based on hundredweight shipped. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you pay hauling based on hundredweight shift, you pay um promotion based on hundredweight ship. And lately, if you're in an area that has the co op base excess plans, probably that base uh, is based on a hundred So if you can ship more components per hundred weight of milk, then this is, you know, all good, both from a revenue and a, you know, cost side. And farmers are businessmen. Dairy farmers are particularly good businessmen. And the result is that components have been, you know, kind of increasing steadily for for many years, and it used to be, right, that protein was kind of the primary driver of milk checks, and that makes a lot of sense with the growth in cheese consumption in particular. Um, and in fact, you know, today we're in kind of that situation, but there was a really, I mean, five-year period or so, 2015 to 2019, uh, where butterfat was the primary driver of milk checks, and that, that relates kind of back to the uh, consumption trends that we've been talking about, which is that people have figured out that not only are, is fat not bad for you, but of course, it tastes better and fill mm-hmm. you up there's incentive to to keep increasing your your butterfat and we're at the point where we've set records in the past year with over 4% butterfat on average for the whole United States uh, on on milk shipped from the farm so farmers are are hitting those uh targets and incentives that they're getting
0: yeah, one final question on that before we take our break here on Dairy Stream, and that is on the butterfat issue. You said it was trending well through uh, 2019, uh, then COVID hit. Was that part of the reason to think we've taken a step back, and do you think this will continue to be a trend that will grow into the future, or do you think it had its like golden age during that five-year period and now is going to kind of level off a bit?
1: That's a really good question. I, I think it's still going to continue to grow. I think we're going to continue to eat more like the Europeans and, and the butter fat is, is in whole fat yogurts and right. in whole fat milk. It's in, um, it's, you know, the ice creams that people are deciding if they're going to eat ice cream that you should eat, you know, the, the stuff that actually tastes good. Mm-hmm. Um, otherwise yeah. don't bother. And, and I, and so I think there's, uh, I think there's definitely room to grow, not only the domestic market, but the export markets as other countries get more income. Dairy fats are really uh, good products to be consuming.
0: You're listening to Dr. Chris Wolfe, Professor of Applied Economics and Management uh, at Cornell University. We've been talking about milk classes and components. We're going to take a little bit of a break, but we still have uh, an interesting conversation to really focus in on how does milk classes and components impact the bottom line of your milk price. So please do stay with us for that. I'm Mike Austin, and you're listening to Dairy Stream. And we'll be right back with our Dairy Stream podcast after we hear from our sponsor.
1: Because of the cyclical and sometimes volatile nature of the dairy industry, it is critical for producers and agribusinesses to have a reliable financial partner they can rely on through unpredictable business cycles. Our specialists at BMO Harris Bank are very well versed in all facets of the food continuum, from inputs through retail and distribution, and they are ready to provide the financial solutions that will allow you to improve your cash flow management, minimize your risk, and capitalize on growth opportunities. To learn more about how we can help, visit bmoharris.com backslash agriculture.
0: Well, welcome back to Dairy Stream. It's brought to you by the Dairy Business Association and Edge Dairy Farmer Cooperative. I'm your host, Mike Austin, and with us today is Dr. Chris Wolf, Professor of Applied Economics and Management at Cornell University. We've been talking about what are milk classes and components, and now we really want to focus in on how does milk classes and components impact milk price. And so let's start out uh, that, Professor, and talk a little bit about, you know, how does having your milk be part of a certain milk class actually impact your milk check?
1: So, if your milk is pooled, if if you're, you know, part of a co-op or processor that's pooling your farm milk onto the the federal milk marketing order, so the market-wide pool, then your particular milk going to any given use has no direct effect as far as the uniform price that's a function of utilization rates and class prices. However, right, it, it definitely can have an impact through your cooperative or processor situation in terms of whether there's overorder premiums or other market implications. And also having a higher utilization, say in higher value classes like class one, uh, is going to increase the blend price. And that's you know the primary reason that this declining class one utilization is such a big deal kind of across the whole dairy industry in, in the country. And I think it's kind of helpful to think of the uh, farm milk price as having kind of three parts. One is the federal milk marketing order price, which is the uniform or blend. And then there's the kind of co-op or market aspects that are particular to your where you're shipping your milk and what the state and regional kind of market implications are. And that impacts things like overorder premiums and whether you can, you know, achieve those, which has been an issue, you know, where we used to be able to get a more uh, regular overorder premiums in a lot of parts of the country than we've been able to get in recent years. And then there's the farm-specific aspects, right? And so we're kind of generally discussing the federal milk marketing order kind of uniform or blend price here, but there's also important effects in the other kind of two factors, um, including the farm effects like quality, component levels of somatic cell, hauling, and things like that.
0: Yeah, a lot of ingredients in that final pie, as they say. Uh, During our last segment, you did talk a little bit about how components impact the milk check, but I want to take a little further when we talk about component values. Do they really vary across the different federal milk marketing orders?
1: you know they they do there's some seasonality in components that you can see if you if you watch component levels, you can look at federal milk marketing order statistics, and you can see that the seasonality that um, depends on you know kind of what the feed situation is, and that whether the cows are getting some fresh feed or what, how close to calving they are. Because even though farmers have done a pretty good job, right, of of evening out calving across the seasons, there still is a little bit more calving in the spring than there are in the other, and you know where you are in the lactation. If you've got more cows that are near the earlier part of lactation or near the peak, then you're going to get some different components there. It also kind of shows up, weather effects show up, right? So when we see, when it gets real hot in the southern part of the country, especially in the southeast where it's humid, then that really has a, an impact on component levels. And so those kind of things show up. Forage quality shows up. If we have a bad forage year, you, you know, you'll see some parts of the country, uh, whether it be because there's drought or because it, in fact is too wet which is what it was in the part of the country where where I was this last year where it was hard to get anything made because it was raining all the time Um, (laughs) those kind of show up and so they they definitely vary and also there's a little bit you know the Pacific Northwest really has tended to have really high component levels for quite some time higher than some of the other parts of the country so it, it kind of varies a little bit based on weather based on genetics based on feed right now with the drought that we've seen in the western part of the United States that's kind of showing up uh, in some of the component levels. So you're seeing from some of the states that are um, suffering from the drought, which has resulted in higher feed costs because, you know, you also have to make a decision to to feed for the components, right? And at some point, if it's just too expensive, then you're going to make trade-offs there.
0: Now, Chris, when we've been talking about prices, there certainly has been a lot of emphasis over the last decade or so, and there's been a lot of news about the fact that you know we are increasing our dairy export market and what how important that is to the piece of the pie. When we talk about components and classes, do they really have an impact on export
1: markets? One of the things that, That has really kind of stood out if you kind of look at longer term trends in this country is that for many many years we essentially imported about four percent of the dairy products that we consumed in this country and we exported four or five percent so it was pretty much a wash they were different they were different things right so what we tended to import and still what we tend to import is still about four percent and it tends to be um high-priced European cheeses for example although one thing that another thing that stood out i think in the last couple of decades is how much better we've gotten in this country with the small and medium-sized cheese producers of making really high-quality cheeses of all different varieties which shows yeah, up especially market like- oh, yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's really impressive but then about 2005 we really well for one thing the price support program was no longer interfering with farm milk prices and we became competitive on world markets especially for our powders which is what we kind of always exported but it was more like five percent and then it started to grow and and then since 2005 we've really gone from that you know four or five percent equivalent of milk production to now we're 16 18 percent so you know one day a week or more of of equivalent milk production being exported and so part of that story is the the price support program no longer interfering in us you know depending on what's your point of view you might think this is good or bad but right. being you know at world prices right and being highly competitive uh, but but the other thing that we've done and if you look at it what we tend to export for the most part is powders and that makes some sense uh because we're not shipping water and water you don't want to move water around i mean milk is you know 87 87 88 percent water it's expensive to move water so it makes some sense to sell powder but the other thing is what we're selling is the non-fat dry milk skim milk powder the dry ways, the whey protein concentrates and so a lot of what it is is solids not fat uh and proteins and so part of what's been going on is as we've consumed more butter fat. We've grown milk production to meet the butterfat consumption trends, and then we've needed some place to sell those extra proteins and solids, not fat. And that's really been in the export market for the most part, although we also export a little bit of butter, we export some cheese, we export some whole milk powder. So I don't mean to say that we don't do any butterfat, right. but really the export markets have been really important for balancing production of butterfat and solids, not fat, or protein. And, and so- Not to make this too long-winded, but if you look kind of what's been going on to our neighbors to the north, to Canada. So they have a, a, a strict production quota, which they do And in, in order to make that work. You also have to have import restrictions. Otherwise, they get flooded with milk from here, which is much cheaper. So, but when they set the production, they've been setting it based on their butterfat needs. And then they've had this problem where if they produce enough milk to get the butterfat needs, they have too much solids not fat. And so kind of the dispute with them in recent years was they were selling that excess powders at below the prices that they were paying the farmers for them. And that's kind of the economic definition of dumping. And that's kind of what we got uptight with them about, right? So, but we haven't had that situation because we are competitive in world markets. And so we've been able to export those products. So yeah, the components, I think, are an interesting part of this whole story.
0: So putting this under the umbrella of the guise of the entire you know, bottom line dairy price I'm getting as a dairy producer myself, short answer here, do I need to be focusing in on that export market knowing what's happening there?
1: (laughs) Um, Yeah, you know, the short answer is yes, Um, you know, if you have the kind of time and and management ability, it's interesting to have some idea of the way in which the export market is impacting your price because for the products that we export, the nonfat dry milk, skim milk powder, for the dry ways and stuff, our domestic price is highly correlated with the international prices so if you look at in by international prices here we we mean you like global dairy trade and the prices out of Oceania. so yes it does matter to you what's going on you know so it's kind of a good news bad news thing the good news is that we have a, we have an outlet for the, um, for the milk proteins and the solids, not fat that we're producing. So we can, you know, continue to grow milk production here. Uh, and, and the bad news is we may be bringing some volatility back it, to the extent that there is volatility in the international market. And also that makes dairy increasingly susceptible to political disagreements, right? So um, yes. some of the trade disputes that we've had, yeah. I mean, so 25, 30 years ago, you didn't need to pay any attention to what was going on in New Zealand or what was going on in you know china or south korea as far as i mean maybe you did but it wouldn't have been for your milk price directly it might have been for your feed prices or or other things of that nature but today sadly there's no free lunch we get some good things out of the exports and then we also get some bad things
0: Many time with Dr. Chris Wolfe, Professor of Applied Economics and Management at Cornell. And we're talking about how does milk classes and components impact milk prices. And Chris, I kind of asked that last question as a lead into this next one, because I think it uh, is an important issue and one that uh, producers really need to focus in on. And that is their own. when We talk about risk management plan. So let's go to the general topic, though, of how, from your perspective, do you see components and classes really impacting a producer's risk management plan.
1: From my perspective, the components in the class uses affect your farm milk price basis, right? Mm -hmm. The basis being the difference between your cash price, which in dairy, we generally think of as your mailbox milk price. So what's the bottom line on your check that you actually get paid? And then what the futures price is, which we often um, think of as class three, uh, because that's where, well, first of all, cheese being the biggest use in class three being the biggest class, but also because that's where most of the liquidity is. If you're looking to use the futures and options contract. Although, of course, you could use class four or you could use dairy product prices as well. So the class three and class four prices are announced and cash settled at the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. And they're at a standardized 3.5% butterfat, 96.5% skim. Mm-hmm. So higher components or lower components, and mostly it's going to be higher for most farmers, right? So higher components result in a higher farm mailbox milk price, uh, but they also result in a larger basis if you're using class three or class four contracts because of the, it's not that standardized butterfat level. And so risk management kind of on the whole depends on the resulting basis risk that you end up with being smaller than the um, relative amount of risk that was in the original you know, cash uh, milk price, mailbox milk price. And so that's that's, for example, a primary reason why if you're a particularly high component herd, you might want to use maybe the butter, fat and protein options in the dairy RP program rather than class three and class four prices. And that's actually one thing that's nice about that new kind of newish tool that we have dairy re- in dairy revenue protection, which is you can tailor it more based on your component level.
0: So not so to interrupt that, you, but you you do feel that program is a step in the right direction of maybe producers having a little more say on their bottom line?
1: <laughs> yeah, I think it is. I think it's innovative in that in that sense, and that's a good thing is you know, for producers. Absolutely.
0: Okay. Well, go on. I know you wanted to get into more detail. I didn't mean to interrupt you, but just wanted to clarify yeah. that point.
1: Yeah. yeah. No. Right. So. So, and I think kind of the underlying set of issues. If you are a dairy farmer right now trying to implement risk management plan is the basis risk, partly driven by the components uh, and class uses that you and I have been talking about today, Mike, but also, unfortunately, also Other issues that are kind of tangentially related that have been contributing to basis risk, like the variation in PPDs and and the volatility that we've seen that are related to things like trade disputes and the government stepping in to buy products kind of ad hoc under the Farmers to Families Food Box program last year and things like that have right. kind of increased the basis risk or at least the volatility of the basis and, mm-hmm. and made it um, more difficult. But, but I think one key to the risk management plans is to kind of have a plan and the best place to be is probably out there nine to 15 months if you're going to be doing it and to be doing it consistently based on your cost of production and your situation. But these class uses that we've been talking about have driven part of the risk for example, the higher of versus average of that we've used for the advanced skim pricing for class one had been, you know, a, a, a potential source of risk. And, and we're still kind of having that discussion. And in fact, we'll probably continue to have that discussion to the next farm bill or, or the next federal Milk Marketing order reform. what we're going to do with the class one uh, pricing rules.
0: Enjoying our conversation today on Dairy Stream with Dr. Chris Wolf, Professor of Applied Economics and Management at Cornell University. Getting near the end of our conversation. And again, uh, Dr. Wolf, I want to thank you for all the time. But I do have two questions, and one's pretty specific yeah, as far as we've been talking about volatility, we are talking about risk management, uh, you know, and how they really are impacted or how components and classes impact them. So, As a producer myself, you know, what should my focus be? Where should it be to ensure I'm getting the most value out
1: of my milk? Ultimately, it's about looking at the relative prices of uh, what your uh, input situation is relative to components, and most farmers are going to be trying to Get get the fat production up, get the protein production up, get the component level up. But again, that's going to be a function of where your your feed prices, in particular, are. Because in economics, it's the relative prices that matter. So it's the you know the kind of the ratio of the fat price to the feed uh, inputs that you use to generate the fat. But as we discussed earlier, I think there's a lot of incentive both on the cost side and on the revenue side to get those components up to the extent that you can and be shipping less water off farm, which is you know driving part of your costs, like hauling and things of that nature.
0: Good, I wanted you to make sure you did reemphasize that point because that's one I kind of highlighted when you are talking earlier. Final question is, should I again have any particular trends or that that I should keep an eye on and be watching if I wanna know exactly where this industry is going when it comes to my milk check?
1: I think consumption trends are, are, are a big deal. But I also think that one has to be careful not to overreact. When when we see these kind of uh, uh, announcements or, or articles that say, you know, like the end of dairy and things of that nature, and we see, and I, I mean, I don't know, I might be Careful here. I don't want to get off on a rant, but sure, um, you know there there are a lot there are a lot of things that I read, particularly in popular press, that are parading as kind of research that I think are actually more venture capital propaganda. With certain firms that are looking to raise money, saying things like you know we won't need cows in ten years and things of that nature. And I think it's that we're a long ways off on that. If we ever get there, remember mm-hmm. that they've got to be competitive with what dairy farms are doing now and dairy farms efficiency continues to go up furthermore to the extent that they can bring more product on at that price all they're going to do is drive the price even lower. And and so I think actually the long-term outlook for dairy proteins and dairy fats is good. I think that they're super high quality. And I think as not only the United States, middle class continues to grow, consumption continues to go up, but as other countries do, that they'll, there's going to be a good market for these products. And so I think kind of a Long-term focus on the farm, you know, is going to be focusing on getting the components up and managing the other important cost aspects like labor and other issues that we have to deal with. But, you know, not overreacting to these trends that seem to come and go that just kind of get attention and then are done and we're not thinking about them in, in a year or two.
0: Well, Chris, I really appreciate your candor and your passion, and don't change it all. You know, if something rouses you, I've always got a couple extra blood pressure pills I could (laughs) send your way. (laughs) I know that feeling. But again, uh, we appreciate the conversation today. I know our audience uh, did get a good education today and hopefully has a better understanding of their milk check, especially when it comes to how milk classes and components play a role. So again, our thanks to Dr. Chris Wolf, Professor of Applied Economics and Management at Cornell. Uh, as always, we want to thank our producer, editor, Joanna Guza, for the great job she did. And want to thank you and the listeners for you know, both your attention and all your suggestions, like today's program uh, came out because of your request. And here on Dairy Stream, we again vow to continue to be a source of information for a more sustainable and profitable U.S. dairy industry. Again, thanks for listening. I'm Mike Austin, and this has been Dairy Stream. The Dairy Business Association and Edge Dairy Farmer Cooperative would like to thank you for listening to Dairy Stream. If you enjoyed listening to our podcast, please subscribe and rate Dairy Stream. We value your feedback. And if there's something you'd like to hear, just email us, podcast at dairyforward.com.